Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance in society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. I'm your host, Thomas Hale. This week, I'm joined by Erica Elvis, an entrepreneur and seasoned strategy lead dedicated to creating the systems and conditions required to secure a safe future for the human species. She was co-founder of Offworld, an industrial robotics company where she led a team of machine learning engineers to develop teachable mining robots, and was also the co-founder of Shackleton Energy, where she developed an international public-private consortium to create technologies to extract water ice from the moon in order to fuel deep space missions from low Earth orbit, drastically reducing the cost of such missions. Erica's 15 years of strategy consulting experience started with McKinsey & Company, where she served global and emerging markets, financial institutions on strategy, performance, and operational transformations, and later advised GCC governments and investors on transitioning to a green economy. At the Metals Company, Erica is working to build the world's first vertically integrated clean energy ecosystem, by establishing alliances with like-minded leaders in offshore electric vehicles and renewable energy technology, as well as developing our transparent province strategy to enable the metals company to establish clean metals as a new purchasing category. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. I'm glad to have you. So I'd like to start off our chat by learning a little bit more about your career path into the world of mining and specifically the route which led you into this interesting space of deep sea mining. And Spinner interesting path into deep sea mining. About half of my career has been in strategic consulting, and then I took a left turn or right turn and into extreme environment mining robotics, starting with space. You know, I was quite preoccupied with existential risk. I thought diversifying our presence in the solar system was important and plenty of people were on transport. So I thought the next most important thing to tackle would be space resource utilization. So hence extreme environment mining robotics. So I founded two space mining startups. The first one was purely focused on space and learned the hard way that these are extremely hard to fund. So in the second iteration, we decided to treat Earth as the our analog and develop robotic mining systems for terrestrial mining clients. So that's kind of what got me underground mostly and working on robotic solutions for copper and PGM deposits. And I think when my paths crossed with the team at the metals company, I was just blown away by the scale and the quality of the resource compared to what I was working on, which at the time were tier two deposits, you know. So I just thought this is such an amazing opportunity for impact at scale. So five and a half years with GMC now. So let's discuss the concept of deep sea mining. What is it and what does it mean when we talk about mining in the ocean? What are some of the commodities that we're specifically looking for in the deep sea? Yeah, I mean, deep sea mining is as broad a category as land-based mining. Generally, it refers to resource extraction at depths below 200 meters, and it can go as deep as six kilometers. And just like with land mining, you have several types of deposits, and they come with different content that's of interest. 
But the main resources that are currently of interest are seafloor massive sulfites. These form around hydrothermal vents, and this is usually copper, gold, silver, and zinc. Then you have cobalt crusts that form on the slopes of seamounts or underwater mountains, if you will. These usually contain cobalt, manganese, nickel, and platinum. Then you've got polymetallic nodules that are discrete kind of golf to potato-sized rocks unattached to the seafloor. They have nickel, cobalt, copper, and manganese. And then you have rare earth muds, which I guess self-explanatory, they have rare earths. And you have some deposits in Saudi and off the coast of Japan. But these would be the four major types that people are focused on at the moment. So when we hear deep sea mining, what does that mean then? We hear about the deposits and the different types. We hear a lot about boats or different technologies. What are some of the technologies that we will use specifically for deep sea mining that you're working on? Well, just like on land, the nature of the resource dictates the type of extraction method. If you look at seafloor massive sulfides and cobalt crusts, that will feel a little more traditional, you know, kind of and more comparable to some of the land-based mining. It's basically you have a metal bearing ore that's an integral part of the substrate rock. So what you need is traditional hard rock cutting techniques. In case of, if you take rare earth muds, it's a completely different operation. You're basically dredging up the mud for later processing. And then when, you know, nodule size is its own, I mean, there's no parallel or analog on land for this other than, you know, picking discrete rocks in a field, I guess. Because basically what we use there is hydraulic pickup. It's a little bit unusual and some people confuse it with dredging, but it works completely different. We're trying to entrain as little sediment as possible, not as much sediment as possible. And what we do is kind of, if you're an engineer, that's kind of fun. You direct a jet of seawater at these discrete rocks that sit on top of the sediment in parallel with the seafloor that dislodges the rock. The fun part is as the collector moves over, it has a curved head that creates a negative pressure and basically channels the rocks, the dislodged rocks into the machine. So it's it's known as a Kawanda effect, somewhat similar to, I mean, engineers might cringe, but you could you know conceptually compare that with how airplanes lift the same idea, negative pressure around a curved surface. So let's learn a little bit more about the metals company. So give us a bit about history about the company and its goals surrounding deep sea mining. Where is the company currently at in this process? And what are some of the future ambitions for supply materials, which in many cases are necessary for this energy transition? You know, the first thing to understand about us is that even though we're focused on nodules today, we're not about deep sea mining, we're about the metals. And in the broadest Mission-wise, what we want to do is manage or help manage the metal metabolism of our civilization. In the long run, what that would mean is simply making sure that all the metal stocks that we have in use in our system get recovered at the end of life and get redeployed for many generations. So our end goal is being a recycler. However, when it comes to our metal metabolism in the short to medium term, Recycling is not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is missing stocks. Like our existing stocks, I mean, are so much smaller than our current needs. So the real problem is how do we inject 
the metal we need for the energy transition and for our development requirements with the lowest environmental and social cost. It is that question that led us to deep sea and, and more specifically, not any deep sea type deposits, but polymetallic nodules specifically. So that's the resource we've been exploring for the last 12 years. We hold either directly or indirectly um, rights to three exploration areas in international waters in an area known as clarion Clipperton Zone. It's kind of halfway between Hawaii and Mexico. So in the last 12 years, we have defined the resource and issued technical statements on resource statements on two of the areas. It's very large. The two contract areas that we have could have enough in-situ metal to electrify the entire U.S. passenger fleet. That's 280 million cars. So it's you know mind-boggling in terms of size. We've piloted nodule collection technology. We um, developed and piloted a zero-waste processing flow sheet. And then perhaps most importantly, when it comes to amount of time and just sheer resource and investment spent, we've been baselining the marine environment and trying to understand how it would be impacted by our operations and how we can mitigate against it. So where we are in the process now, we've done all the hard lifting. So now we are working to prepare our application for exploitation to the regulator with environmental impact statement and environmental management plan as, you know, once the centerpieces of that application. If successful, we could be in commercial operation as soon as 2025. So how does the environmental impact assessments from your background in terrestrial mining change with deep sea mining? Can you maybe talk a little bit more about some of these environmental baselines, assessments that you've done, what that entails, and how that's just vastly different than a terrestrial-based mining operation? Yeah, you know, it's a mix between basic science and environmental impact assessment, basically throughout the entire water column. You know, on land, because we, we, I mean, I was part of several technology trials. If you're doing a technology trial, your environmental impact assessment is a risk assessment that is like 20 to 30 pages. Here, to do a technology trial, we've had to collect data for several years. The ultimate output was, you know, over 300 pages long. So it's very comprehensive. The reason for all of this is, you know, I guess... Fortunately, not always, but fortunately for us as a species, we do learn sometimes from our experience. And in this particular case, a precautionary approach has been chosen by the regulator and is widely supported by all the contractors, meaning, you know, invest upfront in impact assessment and exploration before any commercial activity begins. So we know what we're getting ourselves into. In contrast for to perhaps, you know, how we've historically have done it on land. So there's a mindset issue, you know, we're, we're doing, investing a lot of work up front and it's quite comprehensive. On, on land, if you're doing an environmental impact assessment, you'd usually check, you know, keystone species, IUCN red list species, right? Just to make sure that you're, you know, not impacting those. You're not going to be looking, you know, doing complete inventory of what lives in the soil, what lives, you know, all the insects, all the birds, everything. While that's pretty much what we're doing in the clarion Clipperton zone from the seafloor and what lives in seafloor sediment all the way up through the water column and above surface. So kind of profiling, it's quite a complex program because it's, it's quite a lot of 
different types of biologists, oceanographers involved in the whole endeavor. So, I mean, it's very complex, but it's also very exciting because sometimes we, we joke that, you know, it may be a resource extraction company on the surface, but fundamentally we're a deep sea research company. If you look where time and money goes. No, I think that's a very interesting point in talking about the complexity and the amount of individuals that have to be involved in that process. And so one of the things that you brought up specifically, and I think you noted very well, was the different types of deposits in the ocean. And so why is the metals company specifically looking at nodules and what was kind of that reasoning behind that when you're looking at kind of the environmental challenges and opportunities of the nodules versus the other crusts and hydrothermal vents? It's kind of intuitive, right? If you don't have to break the substrate, I mean, if you have discrete sitting rocks and you don't have to break a underlying substrate, I mean, that's a big plus. It's a very different type of operation. In fact, coming from a place where I did work on hard rock mining, I feel deep embarrassment with people describe what we would be doing as mining. It's quite disrespectful for people who actually have to, you know, cut 300 MPA rock. I mean, that's just a completely different ballgame. That's one. Perhaps more importantly, if we start with the resource itself, it has high grades of four transition, energy transition metals in a single deposit, you know, with an uncanny fit for what we need. And it's just to give you a sense, right? So we have nickel, copper, and cobalt. If you put all the content into nickel equivalent, you're looking at about 3%. If you put everything into copper equivalent, you're looking at about 7%. My before joining TMC, I was working on a copper project with 0.5% copper and nothing else. So, you know, in mining, it's resource, resource, resource. And when you have a resource quality like this, that changes economics, that changes how much you mass you have to process and so on. That's only the beginning. The second bit is there are no toxic levels of deleterious elements, which allowed us to do something, you know, we're quite proud of, which is turn all of nodule mass into products. So there are no solid waste streams from processing nodules. So that's quite an accomplishment given that waste generation, I mean, always has been, but it's going to become an even bigger project as grades are falling on land. Then we thought it's a big advantage that the deposit happens to sit in the most common geophysical domain on our planet. The reason why that is interesting is because it much more easily lends itself to conservation. You just can you know, leave vast areas untouched and protected. And in fact, the International Seabed Authority, our regulator, have in the clarion Clipperton zone, have 43% under protection. You know, if you compare that to the 30% target for 2030 in the recent high seas treaty, we're already there and, you know, there'll be more protection down the line. So that was exciting. It's far away from human settlements, thousands of miles. So you're not moving people, you're not interfering with traditional ways of life and so on. So that's, that was helpful. And it's a very food and energy poor environment, which means, you know, there's not a lot of life down there. It's one of the lowest biomass places on the planet and the entire plant kingdom is missing. So again, that also is helpful when you are trying to minimize your environmental impacts. Lots to be excited about with this resource. It's quite microporous, so it's easier to process. It's remarkably consistent because nodules form through precipitation. So grades are consistent across hundreds, thousands of kilometers, which if you know land-based 
deposits, that's quite a rarity as well. When it comes to pure operational considerations of energy inputs, mass to process to get at the same amount of metal. I mean, it's just so many advantages. And yeah, when you listen to those advantages and you look at the demand for all these different commodities and the important commodities that are in things like these nodules, it's quite an interesting opportunity to be presented when there's so much demand and very limited supply. And so we'll discuss this a little bit more on our next episode, but I would like to ask if there are any key points that you would like to bring up to our listeners when they're wanting to learn a little bit more about deep sea mining and the opportunities and challenges presented and moving forward with this practice in a very complex political landscape. So maybe there's a few myths that you would like to bust right now or some interesting facts that you would like to put forward for people that may be on the edge of their seats about deep sea mining or wanting to learn more about the opportunities and challenges around deep sea mining. Oh, myths. There are so many. I can certainly go through you know, some of the big ones. If you read media coverage, it often comes across as deep sea mining is going to be the end of human civilization. And if not that, then certainly the oceans. And I think having marinated, you know, in this context for a while, I think mining in the ocean just goes against our collective intuition. And which you can understand, right? I mean, even on land, despite, I'd say, quite a lot of progress that has been made in improving the footprint and impacts on land-based mining, but the perception has lagged behind, right? So mining in general has not a great profile, but then you take that activity and take it into the ocean, which most people today see as a fragile, overstressed ecosystem. And that just feels wrong, right? It's like the worst idea ever. And therefore then any speculations about the impacts, I mean, they just land and travel and get amplified and get people animated and which, you know, which I totally understand. But, you know, the big misconceptions that I feel, I mean, there's, again, as I said, so many, but some of the biggest ones to perhaps would be helpful to know. One is about scale. When people look at the maps of where nodules are found in the oceans, it feels like if nodule mining goes ahead, you know, it is the end of our oceans. Of course, what you know, areas in the ocean where nodules have been found or hypothesized to be found are not the areas necessarily where nodules are that where, you know, that contain economically viable combinations of metals. Not all nodules have the same profile in terms of content. So, you know, about 90% of all nodule exploration happens in the Clarion and Clipperton zone, and that's because of its high nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese content, all four in one. But if you, for a moment, imagine that half of all exploration contracts for nodules that are currently granted in the world, in CCZ, in the Indian Ocean Basin, in Cook Islands, and say all of them get permitted and they all start on the same day and mine out 100% of their area in 30 years, you know, which is pretty unreasonable assumptions, but let's go with that. The area of global seafloor that would be impacted by that would be barely visible on the global seafloor map. It's 0.008%. It's about 15 times smaller as an annual footprint than what we would need for offshore wind for net zero. It's 175 times smaller than what we troll every year today. So it's, you know, just the scale of and proportion is important to understand here. 
And as I mentioned before, you know, more area is already under protection. So that's kind of also important to keep in mind. Then, you know, the, the bit that drives me often crazy is how the debate is framed. It's often comes across as we only have two choices to do deep sea mining or not to do deep sea mining. And if these were our real choices, then I think the answer is self-evident. I certainly wouldn't do any deep sea mining if there wasn't a need for these metals. A little bit of a more real world and dispassioned framing, I think, would be helpful. Just kind of more taking a step back and going, how much metal do we need? What are the potential sources? What are the you know, life cycle impacts of each source, what is the economics and what's the geopolitics involved, right? And then you kind of look at that picture and decide. For all the people who are skeptical or reading the coverage, I think it's important to familiarize yourself with, you know, our project is 50% nickel driven in terms of revenue. Well, where is nickel coming from today and will continue? Well, 100% of the growth and 50% of production is coming from underneath Indonesian rainforests. Well, before you know, you get on the stop deep sea mining bandwagon, probably would be important to understand the impact profile of that source, given that's the main one at the moment, if you want your nickel. Yeah, it just might be important to understand before you make up your mind. And then last bit that is repeated quite often is that we don't know enough. You know, kind of originally coming to this industry from space, I find it entertaining that back in the 1960s, when space program was attracting a lot of money, and ocean people were trying to increase the research funding, the claim was kind of the statement was shared that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about our oceans. Well, that statement has been repeated since the 1960s. And it's like a zombie claim that just wouldn't go away. I'd say we know quite a bit about the Clarion Clipperton zone. We've had hundreds of research cruises to the area. We've collected several thousands of tons of nodules, you know, endless samples, hundreds of box scores. You know, like there's been 50 years invested in that area. So uh, we know enough. It hasn't been processed yet and everything hasn't been published. But I think if a bit more time is given so that all the data that has been collected by the contractors is processed and presented for public consideration, I think that can change the debate quite significantly. So this wraps up part one of my conversation with Erica. Join us for part two as we discuss some of the advantages and challenges behind deep sea mining and ways to better engage with one another on areas of disagreement surrounding new ways to source our metal supply. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website at Mineral Choices for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out to me. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. We'll see you next time.